Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 22, verses 7 through 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me say welcome again. My name is Rob, and I am one of the assistant pastors here. And this morning, we continue on in our series, Hungry for More, where we are looking at the meals of Jesus and lessons that we can learn from what transpires around them. The meal we come to this morning uh, is actually a little different than all the meals we've looked at so far in a couple ways. One, uh, instead of who's at the meal receiving the attention, attention, the meal itself receives the main attention of our passage. And also the other meals that we've looked at primarily, uh, Jesus has been invited to the dinner by Levi or by the Pharisees. There was the one time where he was just out in the wilderness and a bunch of people were hungry and needed some food. But this meal, Jesus is the one that plans. He's the one that sets the time and the place and sets the guest list. So let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we need to hear from you this morning. Would you quiet our hearts? Would you quiet our minds and those thoughts that might distract us? Would you confront those of us this morning that might be here in complacency? And would you comfort those of us this morning that might be here uh, broken and wounded? Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. I pray that you would come in power in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, history at times has been transformed by something as simple as a meal. It was the summer of 1960, and four young men who attended uh, North Carolina A&T went to a Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. They sat at the whites-only lunch counter, and they, they asked for a meal, and they were denied. And so in protest, they refused to leave that counter, changing history. 
If you rewind it some and you go to the summer of 1790, you have Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. And there's this political impasse. They, they can't decide what to do with all the debt that the states had uh, developed in this revolutionary war. How are they going to handle that? And also, where is the capital of this new nation going to be? So what happens? Well, Jefferson invites Madison and Hamilton over to his spot for dinner. And the conversation is lubricated with some French wine and they work out this compromise where the state's debt would be transferred to the federal government and the nation's capital would be situated between Maryland and Virginia uh, on the banks of the Potomac River. You can, you can learn about this uh, dinner if you go to a certain musical that's playing down in the Kennedy Center that I have not been fortunate enough to obtain tickets to as of yet. But uh, in that uh, musical, Aaron Burr sings a song uh, called The Room Where It Happens. Listen to these lyrics. The immigrant emerges with unprecedented financial power, a system he can shape however he wants. The Virginians emerge with the nation's capital. And here's the piece de resistance. No one else was in the room where it happened. Now it was suggested that I sing those lyrics. <laughs> and I suggested that someone had lost their mind. Um, <laughs> but, but history can change with a mill. Mills have the power to change history. And, uh, and no mill greater than the mill that we look at this morning. This, this mill stands at the center of history. Jesus himself says as much in this passage One commentator says this about the mill, that it has a cosmic significance. Within it, we find the clues of all creation, of all history, of the nature of God and the nature of man, of the mystery of this world, which is Christ Jesus. Though the table stands at the center, its effects stretch out to the four corners of the earth. And that means uh, in this particular corner of the earth, in in McLean, Virginia, this morning, if you have questions or you need insight into who you are or into who the one that created you is, if you need to know how to navigate this week ahead, whether this week's going to be one of those mundane weeks or whether it's going to be one of those hectic um, back-to-school weeks, or maybe this week is the week where the wheels fall off and all heck breaks loose. The answers you and I need are found in this meal. You see, we see in Luke's account that that Jesus in this meal doesn't just intend to to feed his people. He wants to form his people. And so we're going to look at two broad strokes ways that he does this. And then we'll look at some specific examples. Starting with broad strokes, we'll see that in this meal there is a past that should never be forgotten And we'll see also that this meal is a means for preparing us for a future meal, a past that should never be forgotten and a means for preparing his people for a future meal. Look at those first couple verses, verses seven and eight. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. You see Passover there mentioned in both of those verses. Luke's going to mention Passover five times in this passage. It looms large over all that's going on. It says, Peter and John, go into that city, find a place for us. 
And then verse 13 says, they went in and found it just as they had told them and they prepared the Passover. That is, they got into to Jerusalem and, and they found the Airbnb that Jesus had prepared for them and it was fully furnished. It had all that they needed to prepare this Passover meal. And we don't want to miss this. Think about Jesus' life at this moment. The authorities are pursuing him. Betrayal is at hand, right? Unfathomably horrible circumstances lie just around the corner, and yet he is completely in control. Everything is going according to plan, even down to the smallest detail of a man carrying a water jar. Nothing is out of his control. And when our days are dark and confusing and our circumstances are chaotic, God remains in control. He is not absent. If he's in control in the darkest days of Jesus' life, he's in control in the darkest days of our lives too. But back to this Passover, this Passover that looms large over all that's going down. I would venture to guess it's probably been a while since you were meditating on Passover and all that it means and all that it symbolizes. So let's do that for one second now as we make our way through this passage. The Passover meal was meant to help Israel remember all that God had done in delivering them and choosing them and blessing them. And at the end of the meal, usually a, a young child, kids, if you're here this morning, you had a role to play at the Passover meal. Uh, usually a young child would ask this question, why is this night different than all other nights? Jesus himself may have asked that question, probably heard that question growing up in a, uh, in a Jewish family. Luke says that they went to Jerusalem often to celebrate Passover. So we need to remember at one point Israel is under uh, Pharaoh in Egypt in slavery, all right? And so God sends these plagues to Egypt to try to, to try to break up Pharaoh's heart to let his people go. And the final plague is that he says, I'm going to send the angel of death and the firstborn child in every house is going to die. We see his judgment, a preview of his judgment against those that betray and reject his love. Now, if you're here this morning and you're new, if you're just investigating Christianity and you hear, wait, what's this angel of death stuff and this firstborn? That sounds nuts. I understand. I've been there. Stick with us. Come bring your questions. In fact, tonight after the evening service, we're going to have a question and answer session on the whole sermon series. So come back tonight, bring your questions, bring your difficult questions. I will gladly receive them and give them to Bill full of love and he will answer them for you. All right, but, but back to this judgment. Um, it's a judgment, it's, it's to be received by all humans, not just the Egyptians, because all of us have betrayed and rejected the love of our creator. So on this night, how are the Israelites uh, going to hope to escape it, to not fall victim to this judgment that is on its way? How are they going to survive this night? And God tells them, in every home, in every Israelite home, you are to slay a lamb. You are to eat that lamb. You are to take the blood of the lamb and, and spread it on your doorpost and on the sides of the doors. Um, you are to take shelter under the blood of the lamb. You see, the, the lamb dies instead of the people in the house. 
So that when the angel of death comes and he sees the blood of the lamb, he passes over that family. It's the blood of the lamb that brings rescue to Israel that night. Now, we've got to be careful. We come to a text like this, a passage like this. It's easy to to leave it in the abstract and the ethereal. But kids, this morning, some of you are the firstborn, right? Some of you are the oldest. I'm the youngest, so I'm in the clear here. But some of you are the firstborn. Can you imagine what it's like sitting at that first Passover meal, looking at that lamb and thinking, if that lamb didn't die, I I die. Right? I don't think you ever looked at a lamb the same way again after that night. And so God says to his people, we see it in Exodus 12 that uh, Moses says, therefore there must be a perpetual memorial that must never be changed, that once a year this mill will remember that incredible, wonderful, and great liberation. So, So at this particular meal where Jesus is with his disciples, that's what hangs over them. That's what they're celebrating is this Passover meal that reminds them of a past that should never be forgotten. And and with this ceremonial question hanging over their head, why is this night different than all other nights? Jesus begins to answer that question, but he does it in a very unexpected way. He's about to give them a means that will prepare them for a future meal, right? Again, now sit yourself at that table with the disciples and Jesus. If you're one of the disciples, you're about to celebrate this Passover meal, and you've done this dozens of times in your life. This is nothing new. You've expected it. It's that time of year. That's what you do. And Jesus gets up, and he begins to speak. But, but he changes the words, He makes these radical changes. We see it there in verses 14 through 20 of our text. But Moses said this this should never be changed. And then Jesus gets up there and says something different. That that lets you know that Jesus isn't your average teacher. He's got a power and an authority. So he gets up there and says different words. And you've got to know the disciples are saying, hey, wait, hold, hold up, Jesus. That's not the script. Right, that's not how this goes. Jesus starts to talk about the bread. You want to know what would have normally been said in the the Passover? Normally in the Passover meal, you take the bread and you say, this is the bread of our affliction that we ate in the wilderness. But Jesus doesn't do that with the bread, does he? Jesus takes the bread and he, he breaks it. And he says, this is my body given for you. In essence, he's saying, this is the bread of my affliction, and it's for you. Jesus changes the words, pointing them to a deeper meaning. You know, the Passover meal would have had bread and cup. It would have had these elements that point to all the realities of the Exodus. But you notice in this meal, something's missing from your ordinary Passover meal. What's not mentioned? There's no mention of the lamb in this meal, right? We talk about those, uh, the question that the kids ask. Kids, you guys love to ask questions. You know, they say, why is this night different than any other night? Kids love that why question, right? Like, why do I have to go to bed? Why can't I watch that movie? 
Why does dad eat so much? All of those why questions kids love to ask. And you got to know sometime in the history of Israel, some 11-year-old kid had to say, why in the world was it the blood of the lamb that, uh, that shielded us from God's judgment? What, what's going on there? Well, Isaiah and the prophets knew that um, the sin and the brokenness and the rebellion of Israel um, didn't escape God's judgment because of a cute little lamb. Isaiah 53 says this, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each to our own way and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, speaking of the one to come, speaking of the one who's hosting this Passover meal with the disciples. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The point that the one hosting this meal is the true and the greater lamb. Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, everything about this Passover meal that you've celebrated all your lives and that our people have celebrated for all their lives, it's pointing to me. It's pointing to this time in the center of God's salvation history when I'm going to give my life so that you might truly be free so that you might truly live and live eternally and not face the death that sin brings. These words that Jesus speak, we celebrate them here in this Christian church as as the sacrament, as holy communion, as the Lord's supper, because he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is food for your souls. And you notice in there he says, um, I'm not going to drink of this vine. I'm not going to eat this food again until God's kingdom has come. That's because he knows that there's a greater meal coming, the marriage feast of the lamb. He says, listen, I'm going to enjoy this meal with you tonight, and I'm not going to enjoy it again until I come back to a true and greater meal. But until then, I want you to do this. I want you to share this meal in remembrance of me. Gather regularly and do that. He is forming his people through this meal until he comes again for a future meal. Bill's going to preach on that in a couple weeks. So this meal Jesus is sharing, it, it helps us to connect the dots from the past to this future meal. And then there's three ways also I want to speak that it forms us. I want to get real specific here. One of the ways it forms us is it forms us as a family in the midst of a fragmented culture. It forms us as a family in the midst of a fragmented culture. You know the Passover meal? It was a family meal, all right? You don't eat the Passover meal on your own, all right? You don't eat the Passover meal on the back of a donkey while you're running errands, all right? There's no combo number three Passover meal that you're going to eat in your car by yourself, all right, it's a family meal. Even in Jerusalem, all right, you were expected to open your home and invite the travelers into your house because you're supposed to be with the people of God when you celebrate this meal. Even verse 15 of our passage says, Jesus eagerly wanted to gather with his disciples. He wanted to be together with him. He wanted his people to be together to celebrate this meal then, and he wants them to be together until he comes back to celebrate that greater meal. It is a family meal. I don't think I need to convince you that we live in a fragmented culture, that we're divided politically, that racial and ethnic and socioeconomic realities divide us, not to mention just this epidemic of loneliness that we see around us. 
Listen to the former Surgeon General, um, Dr. Vivek Murthy, and what he has to say about this loneliness. He, he became Surgeon General at 37, right? I'm like, slow down. You're making the rest of us look bad. Um, he says this, despite living in the most technologically connected age in human development, people in this country are isolated and alone. The percentage of Americans who report being lonely, 40% has doubled in a generation. Dr. Murthy pointed to research that reveals the lack of social connectedness is as much a risk for premature mortality as obesity and smoking. And then listen to these words. The nation's top doctor says, we must address diseases of despair driven by deficits of hope. The Lord in his grace has given us a meal that we celebrate regularly. That reminds us that we are not alone. That we are members of a family and that our family is not marked by our political persuasion. And that our family is not marked by the color of our skin or the country of our passport. But that our family is marked by our confession. That our only hope to find pardon for our guilt, healing for our brokenness, and true freedom is in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. That's our family. That's what we're reminded every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Every time you pass those silver trays to your left and your right, look around that's your family you are not alone don't take them for granted every time you come down uh, on an evening service and take the bread and the cup look around that's your family don't take that for granted the Lord wanted his family together again and again and be formed by being together as a family the Lord's Supper forms us as a family and it, it forms us by causing us to regularly remember what we are prone to forget Think about this. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And then he gives his disciples a meal to, to enjoy. Right? He says, he says that, that you and, and me are so prone to wonder. We're so prone to forget the truths of the gospel that I'm, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a meal that you can see with your eyes, that you can taste with your mouth, that you can touch with your hands, that you can hear my words repeated, that you can marshal all of your senses to remember what I've done for you. And think about it. When you come to the table, what do you bring? Nothing. You literally bring nothing to the table. You come empty-handed to receive. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of Christianity. And you're reminded again and again of those realities. Think back to that firstborn child at the Passover meal looking at that lifeless lamb and thinking if not him then me right when we come to that table that, that's what we think right that's what we're reminded if not him if not that body broken mine if not that blood shed then mine that's what we're reminded of every time that we come to the table a truth we're so prone to forget. And this morning, if you haven't received that grace, if you haven't admitted your need for it, this is a great morning to do so. If you have questions, come find me afterwards. Formed as a family, formed by remembering. We'll finish with this. We are formed by confronting, uh, in this meal, by confronting our hunger and our satisfaction. Do you remember when James started this series? 
He highlighted this statement that Jesus made that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you see all throughout his ministry that Jesus is using food and drink to symbolize something deeper as well, something in our souls that we hunger and thirst for. There's that time when he's talking about the woman at the well who's been married a number of times and you know, she's talking about water and he says, no thanks, I've got this other water. And she's like, "How do, you can't get water from this well. And he says, I, I have a living water. I am the living water. And if you come to me, you will never thirst again. There's this other time where a crowd's talking to him and they're like, well, hey, when Moses around, our fathers got bread from heaven. And he says, listen, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you will never hunger again. All right, because it's not a matter of if we are going to feast. It's a matter of what we're going to feast on. It's not a matter if we're going to go try to find satisfaction for the longing of our souls. It's a matter of where we're going to turn, where we're going to run to find that satisfaction. Before Christ drew me to himself, I looked for that satisfaction in relationships, in performance, in achievement, in success. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things, but they're never going to satisfy me the way that Christ can. And I was designed to be satisfied in him. And I've been a a follower of Christ for almost 20 years now. And guess what? I'm still tempted to run and find satisfaction in relationships and performance and achievement and success. And the Lord in his grace has given me a meal that reminds me again and again, only I will satisfy. Feed upon me for that is where your longings are met. I got to be honest, this is the longest I've taught on the Lord's Supper without actually serving the Lord's Supper. I'm like, how did we let this happen, right? I mean, what's going on here? Uh, But in some ways, I think it's helpful because great meals, great feasts, there's something about anticipating them. There's something about looking forward to that meal that is to come. Early in our marriage, Liz implemented a rule in our household that I was not allowed to ask about or talk about the next meal until two hours after the previous meal because I just love talking about food. Uh, But my hope, my prayer is that more and more you and me will develop almost a Pavlovian response when we see it's Communion Sunday that we'll get excited to know that on that day, I get to partake and be reminded of the grace of my Savior. What he did for me, what he's given me in his life and his death and his resurrection. On that day, I get to remember again, I've been invited to his table. And by being there, he's going to form me more and more into his likeness. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would indeed help us to taste and to see that you are good. Father, I pray that you would convince our hearts and our minds of the reality that the psalmist speaks of, that you open up your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. Father, I confess that that I'm tempted to run to lesser things and treasure smaller things than you, my glorious God, who has rescued me from certain death and freed me from slavery. Pray that you would use your supper and the life of this church and the life of these people to remind us again to feed our souls
that we might remember your goodness and your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.